insight into instruction, combining and cultivating conversations between instructors and students. This episode covers topics about racial injustice, unconscious bias, and white privilege. Some of these topics may cause you to feel uncomfortable or even defensive. This is a normal response. Over the past two semesters, the WSUV Elementary Education Cohort has talked about these issues or ones that are similar. We have learned to think critically, listen and respond respectfully, and reflect upon our own identity. All we ask is that you do the same. This week, we covered the Heart of the Teacher article by Parker J. Palmer. Palmer explains that good teachers teach from their heart. They understand the importance of being connected with their students. The way to achieve that connectedness is by teaching with your true self. Your true self comes from constant reflection and the teacher's identity. She also discussed what happens when one loses that heart and how to navigate that. The second thing we covered was the Problem We All Live With podcast with Ira Glass and Nicole Hannah-Jones. This podcast highlights how integration actually has been proven to help all students. That gap between schools and school district, what has shown to work and most effectively is integrating low-income schools with high-income schools. Ira and Nicole pointed out that the gap is also due to systematic racism that is there and segregation is still alive in the schools today. With the Normandy School District, they inadvertently discovered this amazing solution to the biggest question, how to bridge the academic gap between our top schools and our lowest schools. And this is all due to an accreditation loss and a law that wasn't intended to be used this way. And thirdly, we read an article called White Privilege Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack, an essay excerpt from Peggy McIntosh's working paper, White Privilege and Male Privilege, a personal count of coming to see correspondence through the work in women's studies. During this essay, Ms. McIntosh accounted for 26 privileges. Her skin tone alone was able to ensure her. She took for granted until she wrote him down. She discussed patterns between white privilege and assumptions that were passed down through generation to generation. Then unpacking her invisible knapsack, she asked the question, what will she do to break down that privilege? What connections are you seeing between this week's texts and your future roles as teachers? During the first few weeks here at WSUV, we've had numerous professors host discussions that made us think about our why for entering the field. The Heart of a Teacher article takes this a step further and speaks to the need for authenticity in the classroom, both in curriculum and as individuals. It emphasizes the concept of maintaining one's sense of self and owning one's past experiences. What is an example of a time you did this, and how was it done without projecting elements of your lives onto students in a way that could be considered unprofessional? I would say a way that I um, brought authenticity into the classroom and speaking um, and uh, still maintain it, emphasis on the concept of maintaining oneself in my own experience is I used to have um, family books that would come in uh, with the student or have the student and the families create. They would um, have a section on um, who was their family, um, what was their fa- what did their family look like, 
who um who made up their family like if it was just a mother was it just a father was it both mother and father to have, they have two dads they have two moms they live with their grandparents um or however that looked and then another like on how how what they ate um what they did for fun what they did on the weekends and um, had little sections within their little book. It's kind of like an all about me book, everything about their own lives. And not only would they do it, I would do it. So they get the sense of who I was outside of school um, and that I had, I was a, a gamer and I have a partner. Um, and I brought myself into the classroom and I brought in parts of my um, personality into the classroom with uh, like, I brought, I, as I said, I was a gamer, so I brought in pieces like little toys that uh, for my favorite games that I would bring out, and there would be little figurines, and I'd pass them out, let them explore those, um, and uh, always have. I always would include myself within the classroom for like a picture of myself and my partner and my family. So anything that all the students did, um, I would also do. So like on family gatherings, I would bring my family, so we would all be together. I love that your family your family would come. <laughs> Yes, more forced. Um, But, you know, I had to do things I didn't like, so they had to do it as well. Um, But they were great troopers. Yeah, I think for me, it was more, I guess, a lot of it was in the classroom. So I would be going in and acting a different way in the classroom, but not necessarily like unauthentically. So I I worked for a long time to be uh, comfortable with myself. And pushed myself out of my comfort zone, pushed myself to talk about issues that I didn't necessarily want to talk about, but that I thought was important for other people to hear um, about myself and about things that other people might be experiencing in the same way, authentically their own way, but, you know, the same things. So we were able to sort of connect on that and hopefully people out there wouldn't feel like they were alone. Mm -hmm. Um. But yeah, so when it comes to who I am, I I act differently in the classroom. I act differently at work. I act differently at home, for sure, with family or friends. Um, But it doesn't necessarily mean that that's not authentically me, just because Mm -hmm. I have a lot of different, I don't know, you you move around and you change and you adapt to your surroundings. Um, So what I do in the classroom is I have to act professionally. Um, I have to have more focus and more diligence, sort of like I do as a student, while still holding on to my own personality and my own um, things that I find are funny, but that are still appropriate to talk to in the classroom. Um, And then, of course, be empathetic to students who don't understand things that we're teaching because I don't understand things that I'm learning sometimes. Um, But that gives me the opportunity to say, hey, I was in your shoes. This is something that I experienced not that long ago because right now we're in school, but we're only going to be teachers coming up in two years. And then as a mom, um, you have to have that very fine line between love and discipline. So that's something that I've learned over time in the classroom, but as well being a parent. So um, yeah, I learned a lot of things in the classroom on what does and does not work well my experience kind of pales with your guys's because you guys have both led classrooms but even in the short amount of time i spent volunteering 
Um, I definitely realized that element of how was it done without projecting elements of your lives and um, onto students in a way that could be considered unprofessional was a bit harder to like do the new thought. One example was my first day volunteering in a kindergarten classroom. And this little one, um, my task was to help him with his math during what was supposed to be a small group activity, but he was isolated in a little corner of the classroom. And at first, from my own experiment experiences um, in elementary school myself, I remembered isolation being a form of punishment and almost shame. So at first, I was irritated and like annoyed with this teacher for putting this kid in a situation. Um, but I held my tongue and tried to stay as professional as possible um, and tried to kind of see where the teacher was coming from. And turns out, the specific student had um, issues regarding sensory aspects of the classroom. And so the teacher was doing this balancing act that happens at the kindergarten age of trying to help him excel academically, but also build that social foundation. So during some things like circle time or um, carpet time, he would be part of the group and they had a separate space um, that anybody in the classroom could go to if they needed a moment to breathe. But then during certain academic things, he could do it on his own. And it actually made him be able to grow way more than I expected. And that's where um, I kind of had to realize just because something I experienced had a certain connotation to it doesn't mean that's what's happening in the classroom anymore. Um, and so it was just kind of a moment to really check myself before entering the classroom again. I really like how you uh, s- sought to understand, like you uh instead of like just jumping off of the, uh, like jumping off and just coming to that conclusion, you actually try to understand where that child was coming from and then where that teacher, how they were managing their classroom. Um, and that was really, that, I think that's really awesome. And then I think I was thinking about bringing um, elements that might be considered unprofessional if we speak it, um, would be bringing in different like literature books that kind of like speak to your authentic self that you know that could be happening, that you connect with. Um, in form of literature or things to look up and research depending on the age you work with um, and have them do that critical thinking for themselves um, as well as uh, like have that example thing, you know, if it's like something that I can think of many things that you as a teacher should not say out loud, like as a thing to students, but can also be like put into a book or it's in a book somewhere that says, if you need some like, ask for help and stuff kind of like processing um from my own experiences anyway and I think that would be authentic to myself because I'm there to I want to help all children and I want to keep all children safe and secure but you can't really just like have one person raise their hand and or like have everyone who've had troubles raise their hand and say yeah I had, the tr- I had that trouble because then it would be I don't know some things would just be inappropriate right so the books are giving you a more eloquent way to say something um that if you were to come out and say it without thinking about it first, it, it could come out wrong. Not yes, necessarily like, like you meant to, but. Exactly. Or like, like uh, for like the example I'm thinking of is I like it, but a child, there, there's books on abuse and there's books on things that are not um, acceptable. Like you wouldn't just call it out. You wouldn't just say it out loud or like ask that question to a child because then you're leading on questions or something. But in that book, we have, there's a couple of them at like a preschool level that have like, if you, if there's something going on in your home or going on here, you like the give them the three steps. It's really three steps. And so they could do those steps without having to, I don't know. I want to say 
I don't know. So that was my thought process about that. Definitely. And I think that on a more smaller, like inside the classroom, you also help with bullying or something like that. If you saw kids being bullied or being bullies, kind of work in a text regarding that. That way the bullies don't feel confronted right away because you don't know what's going on with them or if they even are aware of their behaviors and they can kind of reflect on their actions without it being like a public humiliation type issue. Um, But also just open that topic in a way that's comfortable to them, you know, and to the whole classroom. Well, and not making the victim feel like everyone's eyes are on them too because that can be something that can have negative effects as well yeah i think by being too public about victims of anything and can make them feel that shame intensify and possibly like not want to talk about it or talk to adults about it you lose that authority like the trust of students. Well, I wanted to talk about leading that you were talking about, Thomas, how you were sort of leading them to something. And I, I've mentioned before about agendas. Um, so like when you don't have agendas, sometimes it can be easier to not project your beliefs onto kids or, or anybody really. But then also there's the issue that biases are systematically integrated into the school curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can be unaware that you have unconscious bias and that's when there starts being issues. And something that I think is really important as new teachers going into the field is inviting people into your classroom or even like when you're going in and you're acting as a student teacher, inviting people into the classroom like admin or the principal and later on maybe other teachers or subs or, or paras who might be able to see the biases that we don't know that we're doing and they can objectively observe that and and then just being open to their constructive criticism and their questions. It's important to see those viewpoints from someone who has had that bias put upon themselves. And then by doing that, we're able to just create a more open and equitable environment. The problem we live with. Named after a 1964 Norman Rockwell painting, The Problem We All Live With podcast talks about achievement gaps. The analogy between the painting of Ruby Bridges, the first black child to attend an all-white school during the Civil Rights Movement, and the namesake podcast speaks to the idea, not only is this a problem we all lived with, it is a problem that we're still living with. Through segregation and schools allegedly ended after the Brown versus Board of Education case, students of the non-dominated race still experience unconscious bias to this day. Though it has been outlawed, people of color still live in a world where zip codes are the anchors that trap them. Question one, what is one method that has been most effective at closing the achievement gap? So simply put, I think the one method that's been most effective at closing the achievement gap would the integration at the end of the day that's what this podcast was getting at and of course it's more nuanced than that and it has numerous layers but simply integrating different communities into an equal playing field of a school um so everybody can have access to the same learning opportunities and really integrating those students those students who um are academically behind or an academically ahead, if we mix the group, there is more scaffolding happening. 
So those other students are helping the other students succeed because a teacher can only do so much, even though even though in low academic schools, the teachers are not that are not as qualified as their counterparts in higher academic schools. They are scaffold, they would scaffold each other. And then that would bridge the gap without minimal, I would say minimal resources that have they've had used in the past. Yeah, some some of the kids might be stronger in one area and weaker in another, and vice versa. And so by helping one another, they're creating a symbiotic relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but not just that, but integration just gives you access to what everybody else already has access to. So yes. you're getting those quality teachers, you're getting quality education, and it's just putting them on the same playing field for, for any of the resources they may have, you know? Because unfortunately, these kids are still going to be at a disadvantage, even yes. with that, because they are living in poverty, because they have additional stress, because both of their parents are working two jobs or something like that. But it, it at least gives them that bare minimum as far as equity, along okay. with peers. Yeah, because it's a, it's a, this is a law that we must give children an education, and it should be a quality one. And I think one of the things to address about the term integration that came into my head with it is that it was originally this idea of bringing segregated schools of primarily Black students into schools with primarily white students and the idea that that would create also better academic performance Um, and I think a misconception about that was almost this weird idea that intelligence was radiating off of the white students or off of the white campus that's far farthest from the truth exactly Um, it's like Jamie and you get in you Thomas have also mentioned it's it's not the fact that these Um, students are um, less able in their own environments because of the structural like elements of education that are creating these performance differences it's not a matter of race it's not a matter of income it's just what's been put into place and the um the the podcast really talked about that we are not we're no longer like we we thought that we were doing integration when um, Ruby Bridges went across, or was the first black child to go to an all white school during the civil rights movement, we thought that, that would be, at least in my brain, and my thought is that most school, schools were like, like they just, just mixed them up and that's how it was. Um, and not until this class that I was like, there's actually a lot of districts and a lot of schools that are primarily one group of a manure, um, one group of people, white, black, and it's there's not a lot of integration. We're still segregated, and it's all because of the zip code where they live. It's all because of the sy- systematic racism that has been founded on this, on where we live. Um, and they can't really get out because they have this edu- the same districts that've been going on since the beginning, and that's where they live, and they're not doing anything to help. I know how in the podcast they talked about like busing didn't work. But in the case of Normandy, it did, um, even though that those students took, like, went through um, torture, having to be up that early every single day for that year. And um, 
they had to, they they did it, and it their academic they flourished for it because they were getting that quality teachers. They were in the same district going over and over and over again, or and generation through generation in the same school district getting the same type of curriculum, the same type of teaching that is not quality, and so that keeps systematically putting those individuals at a disadvantage and they don't have like I was saying the access to what everyone else has and they should right I yeah I was thinking about that and how the um, schools that were you know those schools that have that concentrated poverty are getting those those teachers that just aren't the best or even the worst some of them are the worst teachers um because I'll send them They'll send right. a good like, like um I watched the movie called Bad Teacher, and they sent the with the problemed teacher to a bad district or a bad school. I didn't think about it until we started doing this and this podcast. I was just I was blown away by that by that. And we need good teachers in schools because it's not just peer integration that we need. We need teacher integration as well because there are so many teachers too talking about that the majority of teachers are white females yeah middle class white females so maybe we need some of those to go to other schools like the teach grant has us do and all of that and you know and that's a benefit because you do get a scholarship to go over and work in um, low-income schools and title one schools or whatever it may be they need that too they need quality educators over there but we also need quality educators of different races within the good schools oh yeah like it should be a divert like we i'll refer back to the book we're reading for our um, diversity class each student needs an adult that looks like them that is like them um whether that be um like a black child to a black teacher, or they need to be represented not only through books, which there is, we found in our literature class, there isn't that many, through an actual life person that they can you look up as a mentor um, and see that, hey, someone like me is doing something and I'm, I'm being represented. Yeah, we need that throughout the schools. And it doesn't have to be necessarily some every single class has a colored teacher it just needs to be in the schools we need to have more diversity in in our teaching staff and our um with that diversity yeah with what we were talking about before where you know you have someone who you're inviting into your classroom to see your your biases your unconscious bias that you're not recognizing well having someone who is black come into your teach into your room and see something like that they're going to recognize it much faster than a white teacher so you're gaining all of their experience um whether or not their experience is good or bad it can positively affect you and your classroom and your students in the future question two Who are some of those key contributors in creating barriers to access in public education? This could be either directly from the information we learned about the Normandy School District's interaction with Frances Howell or any personal experiences you care to contribute. The two that I 
got from that was or were the state or state officials and parents, um, which is awful. Yeah. I mean, I I laugh, but I laugh because I'm just shocked a little bit. I mean, I shouldn't be shocked, but I never grew up around that. That wasn't something that I necessarily grew up around so openly with parents, maybe more with children, you know, like I moved into an all white town, but the parents, I never really noticed any sort of like pushback as far mm-hmm. as me being a person of color. Yeah. But but the kids, I noticed that. I just think that it's insane that a, a parent they, would want to make it harder for a child to get a good education. And they were most, the parents were all white parents. It made more of an effect on me because I actually heard word for word what was being said. And they were saying things like, this isn't a race thing. This isn't a race thing. This is a safety thing. And then they would say racist things. Mm -hmm. Would say things that were just lumping all these kids together that chose these 1000 children who chose for this education that they were granted by law to, uh, to go get. And they just, it was nasty. And I just felt really, I felt bad for the children. It was just, it was, it was in my opinion, wrong. I can understand some concerns, I suppose. Uh, but you have that going with any school district or any place you come across. I wasn't thinking about it earlier, but I'm thinking about it now is that if we look back on the big school shootings, there is a trend there. And they're mostly white people that have done that violence. So like that stereotype is Ill, it's ill applied in my personal opinion. Right. Where was the need for metal detectors and the drug sniffing dogs? It wasn't yeah. necessarily in the neighborhoods that they're uh, so afraid of this happening. There wasn't and... evidence for it. Like this is all at the beginning of the year. They didn't even know anything about there's all this, all these stereotypes and these were students coming in, like there wasn't anything, there was no, found, no foundation for any of the claims that they were making. Right. There was a teacher who's just, not a teacher, a parent who was just saying, oh, Normandy schools lost their accreditation due to violent students. For one, I don't, I can't imagine an administration making the decision to like take an accreditation away from a school because of how students were behaving like it didn't make sense to me on any level but the fact that this um parent stood up in front of three thousand other parents and just said it so confidently and had people agree with them that it was like clapping and cheering yeah it was insane to me um another one that really resonated in that same way of just oh my gosh how can you not understand the um thinly veiled hate almost, of what you're saying was the, or not hate, but thinly veiled privilege. We'll go there. Thinly veiled privilege of what you're saying. Yes. Is um, the parent who said, I shopped for a school district and I deserve X, Y, Z. Because that is showing that you know there's something wrong. That's showing that you wouldn't want your kids going through what these students at Normandy are going through. And it's showing that the only reason your kids are better off than their kids is because you paid extra money for it in what's supposed to be a public and free education. Right. Your house is in a zip code that, and 
in a zip code where more people can buy houses because they have more money, which in turn means that the school that the district that you're in is obtaining the money, the funding from those people owning those houses. And new who's listening, schools are not funded based on government. It's based on bonds raised by on taxes on houses, on properties, not by the government. It's very little amount that school districts get from the government. Right. But they're but they're deciding um, the districts are accredited by the state. Yes. So what what's interesting about that is they're saying, oh, sorry, you lost your accreditation like you were talking about before, not because of violence, but because of test scores. For 15 years. Not one child can do something for 15 years. Like that's That's an entire graduating class of of seniors going from year kindergarten all the way up to 12th grade and more because 15 years is past that. And so now you just graduated from a school that has no accreditation. So what is your education worth? Nothing. Right. And it just reinstilled that. Like it made me remember the discussions we've had in other classes about the school to prison pipeline in these low income areas of, okay, well, if you just went through 13 years, if you're counting kindergarten of school where it wasn't at the caliber and you knew it wasn't at the caliber, um, there was in the same co- podcast, they talked about how one of the highest achieving students had their AP lit class in a science lab with one worksheet that was at the middle school level. How can you have confidence in yourself in the future of your education um, when you're being taught like that and think that you can move on to college or move on past anything? It just makes the trap and the cycle that much I mean, more visible. Well, you even- can't even... Go ahead, Jennifer. You can't even get a job. I mean, you, you're supposed to be able to get a job out of high school. But if you're not accredited, you're not getting that high school diploma that means anything. So not only can you not go to college, but you also can't get a job. So what are you going to do? Right. And like the, for that, there was um, there was one of the students uh, was doing really well. They were on the honor roll list. And they were getting rewarded and they went to the assembly and their name was skipped over. They were, they were not mentioned. And that was not the first time that their stuff was lost and their child wasn't recognized for actually doing their best in a school district. That's not the very best. She spoke a lot about. You're talking about the mother of the child, the one of the children. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So the mother did the best she could. And so she decided like it was a blessing, like the, uh, this loss, this um, accreditation loss and this law that was pl- put into place um, that they said, well, you can go to a school district that's around here um, that is accredited. You're, you're by law um, allowed that. And so she went and she said, well, I'm going to do it because she, she needs it. Um, and they woke up so early and did it. But they like even um, speaking back to the parents, one parent was like, if we start an hour earlier, they might be thinking this is another barrier we can put up. So these children would be less likely to come to our school. And all around these children were actually these thousand, I don't know, all thousand, but they said quite a few families were listening into this town hall because they were going into the school district. They had questions. They were wondering like what's going to happen about their child and their safety. 
or their well-being. Um, and they heard it and like, I wonder how that would make me feel as a child of like, I don't want you here. I don't want any, like, it's just, I would, I would feel horrible. And one little girl did and she still, she wanted to go and talk, but then she got to the pew and she was too scared because it was intimidating people, 3000 people. Yeah. I mean, it's unfortunate that students had, that students were there and they had to hear that. I mean, imagine how if you're going to have a self-fulfilling prophecy and you're hearing something like this before you even get into this classroom with parents and and teachers were even like present but not saying anything I believe so I I didn't hear and in the podcast I didn't hear any rebuttal to any of this except Mm -hmm. for her only rebuttal that I heard was the next day or the next week when they actually started they went and the students and the teachers were cheering for them that they arrived at Normandy, uh, uh, St. Francis Howell. And, um, and that, like, they, no one stood up for them. Right. And, and that, that was Nidra. Yeah. Nidra was a mother. And then um, Mariah was yes, her Mar- daughter. Mm-hmm. Mariah, and, then, and then Rihanna was the other young lady. Right. So, and both of them, Mariah and um, Rihanna, were hearing these things being said about them. And she even talked about um, how when she was being called for the honor roll, they skipped over her. And someone said, well, you know, maybe you weren't supposed to be here. As in, oh, your name isn't on there? Maybe that's on purpose. You, there's no way that you could have gotten that. That sort of reminds me of um, our 402 special education class in the short bus where they say, oh, someone like you can't write like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, how could you possibly achieve that? It's, right. Ugh. And you see the direct um, influence that these parents and the parents at the meeting specifically who were claiming it wasn't a race issue, yet um, we see this influence in their students because Rihanna talks about her first time being called a racial slur was at Francis Howell by a girl that um, told her she didn't belong there, all of that type of thing. And then, I don't know if it was a few weeks, a few months later, they shared a math class and the math teacher asked Rihanna to tutor that same girl in math. Um, So I thought that was such an evident um example of what like a quality education could do in the sense of how much growth Rihanna had but also just an example of how rough just one day must have been to be either of those two girls yes and like that like it's what she was said to her like it was horrible and she uh, I wanted to just comment that she stood up and she's like I'm not going to be that statistic and they always had to be on their on point that they weren't going to be anything what those parents said they were doing their very best to be to be to get their quality education and they yeah but that bias that was all being there should not like it is but it should not be there that student shouldn't have to be like they should be allowed to make mistakes they're learning they are children um, and to have to be on toes, uh, like, 
and go through that is just another challenge and a barrier that they have. Yeah. Well, and then losing um, the accreditation and becoming a non-accredited school, Normandy then says, oh, well, all of you people who have gone over to get this quality education now have to come back. And Francis Um, closes doors. Right. And then the only way, not long after, the only way that you're able to go over and get a better education is if you get a personal injunction from the judge, but you all have to do it individually. We're not just going to put an overall injunction for all students involved. Let's just make it harder for you. And every single parent who's working two jobs is going to have to take time off to do this paperwork, to get this paperwork in. Um, How much more do they have to go through just to get education? And the fact is they want it. It's not like they're just saying, oh, we're forcing these people to to go over here. They have the option to say no. And so like the government, the school district, both school districts, um, parents, like how many barriers do you expect a child who's not even 18 to go through? And their Just parents. Go, and their parents, of course. But I'm like, I, like what do you, what, how, how do you expect them to succeed? Because not every parent can do all that and still be able to make rent when they're tip, when they're working jobs at a lower income and most likely they're working more than one job or they're from a single family and that's the only income that they have and if they lose however long it takes to sit in a judge in in, uh, a courtroom to get an injunction can take all day that's a day's worth of pay that might be meal for all week so like it the sacrifices they have to do it's just it's unreal and like someone who is white and had like I, I, I was poor, but I did not have to go through those hoops. Like my family, they were, they were able to move over here. I had no issues integrating the school system over here. Um, there was no issues with that. And it's just, if any of those issues would have came up, that would have stopped me from coming over here and stuff and like getting a quality education in Washington uh, versus South Carolina. Um, like one of those issues would have definitely just been a bar and a, my family would have ever done it definitely and I think to kind of take us back a moment in history too but I'm I'm interested now after seeing this podcast to see if history repeated itself or never really stopped was um we've talked about the white parents causing uproar we've talked about them talking about um shopping for schools and part of me wonders if this immigration um with Normandy schools and Francis Howell um had continued or however it's progressed if that created another wave of white flight because that's what happened before and that's what created a, a, like an expansion of the suburbs but it's also another like way that these parents just up and took all of the money and all of the funding with them and left these schools in the wake mm-hmm. um, so even after these students either generations before or right now I'm I'm not 100% sure um they jumped through all these barriers just to have the floor ripped out from under them again question three what are common claims made against integration and how many of these can be backed by evidence 
So on that topic of white flight, the common claims made against integration, one of them was that award-winning schools failed in the past because Black children were forced in, but they didn't talk about the fact that those white families left. Right, and with that, all the real estate funding, all the stuff Mm -hmm. that created access. Now, one thing that I did notice, too, is... And if the people in, I don't know how big St. Francis district was, but a thousand students, test scores, you can support that and help that. And like, yes, it does bring it down, but they were able to bridge the gap. So that means that they're learning, they're progressing, they're showing growth. And I'm pretty sure somewhere in some of the um, assessments, if growth is shown, I think that's a score. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not. I haven't. We haven't had that class yet. But I feel like that should be. If growth is shown, that's a success. Right. And I wonder too. Um, it took Normandy schools 15 years to get their accreditation taken away. I kind of don't think that one year drop at Francis Howell was going to be enough to completely rip accreditation away from them. Yeah. Go the ahead. studies have shown that. The integration in the schools helped students' grades, but integration in society helps children's grades as well. And it doesn't, they don't have to be going to an integrated school, but because of that integration within society, sometimes their their grades will even go up because of that. It doesn't have to be specific to being in a school. And I found that really interesting because I, I was just, just that small change lifted up not only the kids in that school but everybody else right i was looking at um i tried looking for if there was any any news about francis howell and any violence or anything that happened within that year and i couldn't find anything so like bringing there a lot of claims are like they'll bring the violence with them um or they'll be violent children and be like their behaviors or however that was uh, that unfolded there wasn't, not that I could find, and it wasn't ever spoken in the podcast, which if it was, it would have been spoken by someone. Um, or be if I, the research I did, I, could, I just couldn't find anything. So that evidence wasn't backed because those students were actually there to get an education and do their best that they could. Uh, family, that it, they, they don't get to choice. It's each student goes to a district or a school within the district and it's, it's a lottery-based system. And we could do some of those things. It's not that they're, they don't want to, it's because it was being forced. If they had a choice, I'm family children to have an education and a good quality well, education. No, and their choice wouldn't be to be bused 30 miles away. It would be to go to the better school that was five miles that was away. Five, that was five <laughs> miles away, right down the block. That doesn't wouldn't even have make to sense. Yeah, another fact that, yeah, another barrier. Oh, yet another barrier. The fact that, another. They, that they still got up early and went to that school. And those parents took that first day off and drove all the way to check on their child to make sure their child was safe and at school. And then drove all the way back to be able to go to work and do what they had to do for that day. It's just awe-inspiring because if given the choice, they would want different. And to make sure their kid was safe Same. at the all-white school. Yeah. <laughs> 
as like, we had parents at the town hall complaining about the violent black students yet black right. parents are silently driving behind buses because there's been historical occurrences it's just so ironic i want to say but in the worst way possible and this is only a couple of years this 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 incident happened only a few years ago this is current information. This is current news. And it's valid. And I'm glad I got to listen to it because um, it just needs to be, it needs to be voiced. Like this stuff works. If we want to act, everyone talks about how we, what is that one method where that is effective in closing the achievement gap is access and integration. Right. And the integration aspect, I think, is so important because they talked about it from the beginning of this podcast, that just bringing in the same methods or the same curriculum design or whatnot, those different things, but keeping it in the same environment isn't going to help. It made me um, imagine a garden that was designed like with full of plants that do best in sunlight, and you're sitting there in a dark room, and somebody asks, well, did you add a new fertilizer? Did you water it extra? It doesn't matter if there's not sunlight. In the essay, White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack, the overall concept is that every person possesses traits that dictate their entitlement to access within society. The author discusses how some elements of privilege need to be deconstructed on the path to equity, while other elements need to be extended to everyone, not just the dominant culture. The author lists 26 privileges or tools within her personal invisible knapsack that allow her access to things that should be universally available to everyone as a baseline. These are things that aren't gained through hard work, merit, or tenure, but through unearned assets. She mentions a few that are related to students in the classroom, like number six, when I'm told about our national heritage or about civilization, I am shown that people of my color made it what it is. Or number seven, I can be sure that that my children will be given curricular materials that testify to the existence of their race. So my question is, what are some examples of tools that students might bring to class in their invisible knapsacks? How can we as teachers work to either deconstruct those tools or provide all of our students with equal access to said tools? So one of the first tools that came to my mind was because of our children's lit class. And it was this idea that some of the students will have came in either reading literature or be prepared to read literature um, based on their age that has images of protagonists that look like them. So many more children's books have white girls and boys in them, and not nearly as many are centered around any other culture or any other story. Um, And I think that can really push out or invalidate children of color in the classroom, because if they're not seeing themselves anywhere in the classroom, what's going to make them believe they belong there either? Mm Mm-hmm. Kind of like we were talking about in the last section about being able to see that person on the other side. Like you get to see someone to be a role model and to be able to see it in books is very important. Um, like for me, what made me think of the tools 
that they may bring in their visuals tap stack was the section that she talked about about music and i can't think of how many times i would play um disney music in my preschool classroom i wasn't listening to i didn't like we didn't do a very diverse like we'd listen to ella jenkins um and some but mostly it was white singers there would be every once in a while like japanese that music i would listen to but if they're not listening to their, like that music that come, they come from their culture should also be integrated and i should have to have to deconstruct that because it's not just my culture it's not just my like they need to see what they where they're from and are in the classroom as well as here as well yeah i mean working in a preschool especially with two-year-olds i i didn't play a lot of background music that had lyrics I mean I would do dance parties with lyrics I would do things like that and we'd do kids bop and we'd do appropriate children's songs or whatever it may be but background music was something that just helped settle the room low quiet classical music by all white European composers (laughs) I never brought in any other culture except for that because that was something that we learned about, I mean, you put this music up to your pregnant belly to help your kid develop and be smart. Right. Just the idea of like Eurocentric intelligence can be really misconstruing. It's something you wouldn't even think to think about. Um, But the fact that those who are classically trained, once again, in this European classical music, um, the ones who are able to afford classical piano training or classical violin training, it's just associated with that, like that level or element of uh, elitism, but there's that stereotype of it. Um, But once again, it's all this European centered and this white culture and this upper academia. And that can once again be an isolator when we have musical geniuses in rap too and in hip hop. And all these things that we're not seeing and is not being exposed in the classroom. Um, And it makes me wonder how many more students would we have that loved writing or loved poetry if that um, connection was drawn between the music they listen to at home and the music they get to hear in the classroom. Look at how successful Hamilton was because it brought this fresh take that students could relate to, to something that <laughs> might have been considered dusty, you know? Not might have been. <laughs> <laughs> it was. I mean, literally my entire life, my least favorite subject was history. And not that history isn't important because history is so important. But the way that they present history is wordy and confusing and has dates and is boring in a lot of ways they don't they don't present it in a way that something like Hamilton does because imagine like you were saying how many kids would be interested in writing imagine how many kids would be interested in history if it was something that was entertaining they could watch a play about history and learn something how many kids remember reading a book versus watching that play a hundred play i would remember that would be it'd be more impactful and also like i would feel history would be a little bit more if it was more factually represented and as well as like 
we teach a lot of white centric like stereotypes and like the like the white man will save us all um and that's not true and so no one's going to be interested in something that's that's, uh, that's not authentic and we should be teaching for our authentic selves and that comes with like for me our history because i'm white and i have european history so like i i understand like, that should be taught as fact right and something sorry to root back to the hamilton play but it was a staple of my middle school self um, and what was so awesome about it when we saw in interviews and stuff with lin-manuel miranda was he explained it as america's history or america's past performed by america's present and because he had people of color playing historically white characters or well, not characters figures of history and the way he did that it just draws on representation and he got a lot of um backlash for it um but i think it was so so important and i mean nobody else could have pulled off thomas jefferson like w diggs so <laughs> we'll just leave that there he, they, yeah he has the um fastest um like performance in all of Broadway's history in one of the songs from Hamilton as well. Um, mm-hmm. Another emphasis that he made that could really be a mirror for a lot of students in this or this concept um, in classrooms was he made an emphasis on the fact that Alexander Hamilton was an immigrant. He came from the Caribbean and there's this moment, right? There's this, there's this picture online of them performing the line of immigrants, we get the job done right as they're about to win the Revolutionary War. Well, um, not to get political, but Donald Trump was in the audience and they're saying it like directly to him. Um, oh, interesting. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it's um, just the way that that was painted. And it makes me wonder how much more would I remember about the Civil War, about World War One, if it could be performed in a way or taught in a way that sits better with all students and it's easier to remember. Music is powerful. I, mm-hmm. I remember things from so far back because of music, because of the lyrics, because of the rhymes. I mean, they still utilize that, but I feel like they don't utilize that for kids who are older. As you get into middle school, who wants to hear a silly little rhyme from you know, some kid show, they don't want to hear that. But there are writers and there are educators who could create something like that. Imagine having an entire YouTube where you just perform these things that are beautifully written that educate you. I mean, crash course, uh, any of the crash courses, those are so interesting to me because of the, the teachers and the writing but then mm-hmm. put song on top of that. And I'll remember it because I remember music in my head. I remember melodies. And that's something that I can, I mean, who, if you can't go and, and say, okay, wh- where is my name coming up next? My last name starts with an L, you sing L-M-N-O-P or you sing the ABCs because that's a, a memory trigger that is using music. Music is a huge teaching tool that a lot of people don't utilize or don't even think about. Right. And if we just continue making it boring and whitewashed and all of the above, it makes it less accessible and not the same caliber of tool. 
in our stop being represented. Yeah. Not relevant to your your audience, our yeah. students. And depending on like like you were saying earlier about rap, uh, have you if you ever actually like looked at the lyrics, they're the meta like um, the metaphors that they use, the way that they are mm-hmm. they are sing rapping tells a story and the story is quite beautiful and some yeah. some things and some other things like all music there's you have your differences but um it's a i it's a it, it, it speaks to a different type and that's amazing and it should be represented inside of uh, the classroom and then i was thinking about it i, I looked back at the question and it says some tools that some students might bring back to bring into their class in their visible knapsack. And I was thinking um, about the students who are coming into the classroom who are well, well off, who like, um, who don't really have to worry about a lot. And then I think about those students who don't have those tools in their knapsack. Um, And then how am I going to deconstruct that? Um, That kind of brings me back to like, how I would like to have a, drawer in my classroom with food supplies for like dear what depends on what age group I teach but like supplies clothes stuff that they may need so that basic care and that basic need is met food if I have a student or if I have a parent who comes in and says something happened and they're just tired or they send me an email or a child's like I'm exhausted for x y and z happened I would like to offer a place for them to sleep they can just sleep and get some rest and I'll wake them up, get, let them have a nap, wake them up and then we can work because they do not do not learn under those conditions. And as well as um, teaching those children who have, who may not have gone, gone, who have gone without or may have, sorry, may have not gone without. I like I was thinking and um, we talked about a diff- at a different time, but creating a survey, maybe like everyone puts in a blind survey and then like do a percentage on like each question, like 25% of you said this answer, 25 or however that might look. So that their representation of themselves is also shown that they're not the only one in that classroom that are in those situations that we're a community and we're together. So kind of deconstructing that like, you may be coming from a lot, but you have other people around you who are not. So let's be a little bit a little bit more mindful about maybe mm-hmm. talking about the brand new PS5 you've got, or did you, are you able to buy me a birthday present or stuff like that? Like m- making them aware that not every child has ac- the same amount of access. That's right. a wonderful uh, idea. And I'm probably going to steal it from you, Thomas. <laughs> but, um... I'm selling it from how I made it in the, la- the last thing we were doing. Cause um, I didn't think about it until just then. And I love it. <laughs> I absolutely love it. Right. I'm going to use it. And um, what it made me connect to, Jamie, and Jamie will remember this too from our math classes, but imagine using that data for our notice and wonder. That would be so powerful and also didn't realize, like, to hear what the different kids are wondering um, right. or noticing. And Bringing in the statistics, but, yeah. but live statistics of the classroom um, into a math class to see and to utilize within a math, within your math curriculum. Um and that could be used for a lot. I mean, so we're talking about those basic physiological needs, like the base of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, so do they have food? Do they have shelter? Yeah. Do they have that? You know, those basic things that they need. 
something that we could do about it is, like you said, bring snacks, but also help parents get into school food programs, provide resources for food banks, talk to food banks about being resources for the schools that need them. But also, you know, when when kids don't have basic things like supplies, backpacks, paper, pencils, what can we do for kids about that? Like, unfortunately, there's a lot of teachers, most teachers that I know have had to go and physically buy school supplies with their own money and they do yeah. it all the time. But there's also things, um, and this is just from my personal experience, is that Facebook buy nothing groups are online and people in the neighborhood that you live in are only allowed in those groups. So it's based on every, there's a bunch of them. They're nationwide. Oh, but wow. you find your group wherever it is that you live and you post things that you don't need anymore or you ask for things. And I have gotten so many of my school supplies from people off of there. I got my oh. TI-83 um, calculator off of there, which wow. is not not cheap, no. you know, but that's yeah. also available to people who will say, hey, I work at a school and they don't have supplies I've seen that pop up for preschools, for regular schools. And these people who are in the neighborhood are there to support the community. And you are, that school is part of that community, no matter where they are. And these people will just donate. And it's something that's super powerful and that people should use, but use it in a way where you're bartering. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me, um, probably before the wave of technology hit as well as it has now, um, but when I was in elementary school, it was probably the Lions Club or a club similar hosted a thing at a local school, um, maybe a week before classes actually started. And it was like pretty much like a food pantry or food drive, but for school supplies. And um, oh, I got yeah, my backpack awesome. there. I got my binder there. Pretty much all, all the stuff I needed was there. And um, it was funny because me and this other student in my class had the same exact backpack because of it. And at first I didn't realize that was why we had the same exact backpack. Um, and we actually ended up taking home each other's backpacks one day. <laughs> because of it. it builds um, that connectedness. <laughs> yeah. But in retrospect, I mean, after that, I started noticing who has those certain backpacks because they weren't, of course, they weren't the name brand Jans. Oh, yeah. But so they were a little bit noticeable across um, campus. And that was a way to kind of feel like I wasn't the only one who needed that resource, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I'm sure stuff like that still exists, too. But like, Jamie, you had mentioned before, just being aware of the resources in your area because people do want to help as terrible as the world might seem sometimes. And I really like the fact that Shamim, our, our teacher for the diversity class, Dr. Raka, um, she made us do a community book that has that those resources inside there. So mm-hmm. we can give those parents say, hey, we have a book of resources for you. Um, use it at your discretion. And then also provide that that stuff inside the classroom to help those children. Um, because I, I, if I had, if I knew any, if I had known or know of any child who needs anything, I will be the first one to be going to the store and grabbing it. Because it's just, I, that it's, it's not their fault, and it's no Dollar one's fault. Dollar store is my favorite. Dollar store works. <laughs> so what you gotta do? Yes. I, I can remember my mom opening a dollar store back, a thing of pencils and giving us all one, saying, "You, this is what you got for the, until next payday." Because that's what, mm-hmm. like, we there was four of us, so we got 
what we got what we got what we needed right sometimes yes. we got those colored binder those colored folders and sometimes we just we just didn't and that's okay mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah but being able to provide that to our students and honestly being a part of the community um but the larger community, the Vancouver community or wherever it is that you are, the larger community, not just having that those glasses on or those blinders on that, oh, this is my school and this is the only school, but realizing that your school might have more than other schools. Um, and how can I connect with teachers? And hopefully we will all be in different districts that we can utilize each other as resources as well which is why having a cohort is so great but if someone needs help then any of you guys can send out a message and be like hey this school needs help and imagine the amount of response that we'll receive and it really does take a village to raise a child it takes one it, it and the fact that we have technology now and like there are a lot of amazing people out there that just don't have the accessibility or not even the knowledge, but they don't know what they don't know. They don't know that there's struggling students out there. But if you post it, you're most likely going to get or, or do something or be a little bit, uh, put it out there. Um, then you get some resources. And sometimes I like as like a preschool teacher, I bought everything myself. I could have asked the parents. I could have, I also could have reached out to the community and asked the community to provide some stuff. Um, and as a teach as a teacher, I'm gonna have to start doing that um, because my the, the ratio will slightly go up by a few kids. So yeah. Um, yeah. Um, um, yep. So yeah, I think that's actually a really good place to stop. Um, but if anyone who's listening has any questions or has any comments or um, wants to reach out. We're all here. We're learning. Let's learn together. Um, Go ahead. And if you guys have anything, any closing statements you guys want to say, go ahead and say them. Thank you all for listening. If you have, I would love to hear any feedback you have, uh, any questions, comments, concerns. Um, And um, I love hearing what everyone, anyone would have to say. Um, Thank you so much for listening. uh, And have a wonderful day. Yes. Thank you so much. And uh, to add on to this, this is a very new podcast. And eventually we want to have guest speakers too. So if something with this resonated with you or if topics in the future we plan on addressing resonates with you, don't feel afraid to contact us. We're all doing this podcast virtually right now. And we would love to hear some more perspectives because we only have what we can bring to the table. We know that a lot of these subjects may have been new and or hard to hear about, but we want to thank you for sticking around and listening. We hope that this episode opened your mind to the future. We hope that it made you think about the past, and we hope that you'll consider taking action to make positive changes in the present. Thank you for coming along with us on this academic journey. Click that follow button so you can join us next time for more ins and outs of education, past, present, and future.